This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewan Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and we're trying something new on the show today because this September, we have three amazing, amazing books coming out. Two are short story collections. One is a novel. And I'm going to ask my three guests to introduce themselves by saying their name and the new book title, and then we're going to go from there. So I don't know who wants to start. Well, um, my name is Jonathan Escoffery, and I am the author of If I Survive You. My name is Ling Ma, and I wrote the story collection with montage. Well, my name is Yi Yun Li, and my new novel is called The Book of Goose. So you in the audience, folks, you've heard all of these names, I'm sure. Jonathan just got a huge review in The New Yorker not long ago. Ling wrote a novel called Severance, which is one of the best zombie novels <laughs> out there. But zombies and, and late-stage capitalism. And Ian has, let's see, a MacArthur Genius Grant, a Lannan Literary Foundation Award. I'm just really excited to see all of you. And we're going to have just a big conversation about your current books, about craft, about being a writer in the world. And what I'd love to do to set this up, I just wanted people to get a chance to hear each of your voices so they know who's speaking at any point in the show. But I want to talk for a second because, Ian, you've also written short stories. so. I just want to start with Jonathan and Ling, whichever, whoever wants to go first. Why start with stories? In a way, I, I came to the, the stories, which it, it is a Link story collection. It's mm. all about the same family. And I, 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 there's multiple ways to, to approach the, the question. Mm. One way is that I tried to write a novel and I, I kept failing to, to write that novel straight through. Mm -hmm. um, the characters kind of came out of a, a story that never even made it into the, the final version of the, the book. But um, I kept trying to write forward from that point And I decided at a certain point in my MFA program to just explore these characters through story. I kind of found my way to the stories in the actual book that way. I had wanted to write a story collection um, during my MFA program, but Severance, which was the novel I had been working on, kind of had more momentum. So I just went with that. I still feel like I'm starting out as a writer. So in many ways, and so stories, I wanted to use that space and this form as a way to sort of experiment and play around with fiction a lot more to play around with the form, I guess, and style and all of those things. Okay, and Ian, you've written a novel about two 13-year-old girls in post-World War II France. Yes. <laughs> I love this book. I love the idea behind it. It was not what I was expecting. So can we just start with the shift? I mean, I'd heard you were working on more stories, and then I heard a novel was coming, and then suddenly we're in France. I think the, the post-World War II France is... Partly just, you know, what captures my attention with children that age. You know, to my mind, it doesn't matter Agnes and Fabian are French girls. They can be Chinese girls, they can be American girls. You know, I, I, there's something about children between age 12 and 14. I have not written extensively, you know, children characters. Right. Between, so I think this is a shift. It probably is not a geographical shift. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's an age shift of my characters. Jonathan, you are in Miami. It's present day. You're writing about a family that is, let's call them Jamaican-American, yeah? 
even yeah, though mom and, mom and dad might have an issue with the American part. Let's talk about Trelawney and his brother Delano for a second, and then we'll get to mom and dad. But let's let's talk about those two. Where'd they come from? I really wanted to write about this kind of divide between generations of mm-hmm. the generation who actually immigrates to the U.S. and the American-born generation. When I was writing the book, I wondered what would actually translate to a broader audience Mm -hmm. because growing up in Miami where, you know, it's truly a city of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I almost think like when people say they're American, it it almost is said in a different way because there's an expectation from fellow immigrants and fellow second generation immigrants that Uh you are very much proudly wearing your heritage on your your shoulder and right. you know and i wanted to think through like what it's like for the character who in a sense i'm thinking of Trelawney being mm-hmm. feeling disinherited in, mm-hmm. in a certain sense you know at a time he makes this attempt to become more jamaican or he even dreams of marrying back into his jamaicanness and mm-hmm. moving to jamaica and and making the us a distant bad memory as he sees it and he's not really able to accomplish that. You know, I guess I'm, I was interested in talking about immigration, but also talking about, we, we, we tend to think of it as, it as though it goes in one direction and never looks back. And mm-hmm. for, I know a lot of people who look back though and, and wonder, and there's, you know, the stories I know my parents told me growing up that made me think, hmm, why did we ever come here then? And couldn't we have avoided a lot of problems if we never did? Mm. Trelawney's also a teenager when you start, right? We meet him when he's like 14, 15 years old, right? He's about nine uh, when we first meet him. But I think because at that age, you know, he has kind of limited agency and Mm -hmm. uh, he receives these questions and people Mm -hmm. are telling him what he is or asking him, what are you? And he doesn't have the answers. His parents, they found themselves in a new context. They don't Mm -hmm. really know what it means to be Black in America or multiracial in America. And they don't have the guidebook to to give him, and he has to kind of figure it out himself, and he struggles to do so. Okay, we're coming back to that in a second, but I want to set Ling up for something because we got to talk about the hundred boyfriends. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the hundred boyfriends! So your your current collection is wildly funny and goes in a lot of different directions, and you've got characters who are children, you've got characters who are young women, young men. And the hundred boyfriends in the giant house in Los Angeles. <laughs> so when you're sitting down to put this collection together, because you'd started this after grad school, you said. So where did the collection start for you? I mean, did it start with a single story, or did it start with the idea that you had a couple of projects lying around and you thought, oh, I should put together a collection of stories? Because this is after your first novel, mm. which so I wrote most of it during like pandemic year 2020. Many of the stories existed already as sort of some loose scenes or sketches at the time, years before when I couldn't finish them as stories because time had passed, years had passed. I had some critical distance where I could allow the emotion of the story to uh, unfurl the narrative as opposed to completely overtaking it. So that's often the challenge that I find with short stories that I don't find maybe with a novel. I want to talk about emotion for a second. And the characters, because 13-year-old girls, yeah, absolutely. 13-year-old girls anywhere Ooh. full of emotions, slightly insane. And I say that having been a 13-year-old girl, so all props. But Jonathan, we got to talk about the men. 
(laughs) We have to talk about your men for a second because emotion is something that they associate with being soft. And this is a huge pain point for Trelawney and his dad, and even to a certain extent, his older brother, who he should have more in common with than his pops. Right. There's the emotion that Trelawney has, and there's a story called Splashdown that Mm -hmm. features Trelawney's cousin, Cookie. And Cookie is trying to figure out, he's he's met his father for the first time when Mm -hmm. he's 13. And he's trying to figure out what kind of man his father is and what kind of man would abandon his um, child, basically, right after he's born. Chalani and Cookie, I think they're they're both trying to be better men than their fathers or their fathers as they have come to understand them. I'm interested in exploring some of those expectations. So where the book is uh, following a lot of his journey to understand how he can fit within the the family, but also not bend himself into this thing that is is largely harmful to other people. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that thing being that idea of, you know, maleness or masculinity, or he's skeptical of fathers in general mm-hmm. uh, for what it is that they tend to pass down. Yeah, and there are basically no parents. <laughs> there are parental figures in Book of Goose, but this is a parentless book, which I thought was an interesting stylistic choice and it makes perfect sense for the moment in history but can we talk about how you got there because i i think it was a deliberate choice on your part to keep the adults out of the room i know just like those peanut strips right you hear the adults (laughs) you hear the teachers you hear the parents but you never you only see the children it's interesting because i was teaching a workshop my undergrad i actually asked the same question i said well there are a bunch of kids where are the parents and my students said, you know, no offense, professor, you know, children don't like the parents to be around, <laughs> which is very fair. So, but I think for this book, because of the two girls, you know, grew up together in the countryside and it was already, you know, the parents were, you know, living in poverty, busy with their own lives. It's almost like parents don't, at the time, they don't interfere with children's lives. They mm-hmm. sort of, the parents' lives and children's lives just they touch, but they barely touch. And I think that's special for my the two girls because they grew up happily as sort of their self-made orphans in their self-made world. And I think it's history specific, but it, you often see children that age. They really can make an entire world out of their imagination and their own game. So I, I'm glad you point out there's it's a parentless book until Agnes. <laughs> goes to the English boarding school where there's <laughs> the biggest parent to parental figure, you know, a boarding school master a mistress who's just terrible mother, right? She really is the worst. But there has to be some fun for you writing a character like that headmistress who kind of is just awful. I mean, there's a freedom in just being able to let her be who she's going to be. I mean, she's trying to control this kid. She's trying to control the story of her school. For you as the writer, though, I mean, you are having a little bit of fun with this character. Yes. Also, I think it just happens she also sort of steps in as old adults in the book. You know, the two girls together, they come up with the idea of writing a book. It's almost a literary hoax. But, you know, anytime a hoax exists, it means someone is going to gain something from it. And it's not the girls, it's the grown-ups, it's the adults in the book. And Mrs. Townsend gains the most from this hoax. So, you know, there's something very pure about the two girls. They're just going to make a game. They're going to have their fun. The purity always 
you know, is disrupted or tainted once the adults come into the <laughs> into the story. So I it's really an anti-adult novel. <laughs> I have to say, I was having fun with the girls sort of watching what they would do. And every time they sort of bumped into one of these walls that an adult threw up, I was like, oh, 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 because dread is something that the three of you do really well. And by dread, I'm, and I mean this as a compliment, and I hope something comes off as a compliment. There is a sense of foreboding in some of these stories. I'm certainly Ling with you to a great extent. The dread always turns into something a little surprising because of the way all three of you use humor. All three of you tend to sort of zig when I think you're about to zag or, you know, and that's based on different reading experiences and whatnot. But can we talk about how you use humor, all of you, and and how you can actually subvert some of that sense of dread? I guess maybe humor has something to do with subverting expectations. And often I think about one way to subvert expectations is like to understand what in terms of like genre expectations, to understand how the narrative is supposed to set up to go and then kind of maybe going around it or going a different way. I, th I think humor is, is one of the hardest things to discuss just because, you know, where, where does it come from? I think Ling was spot on in terms of kind of understanding what the anticipation is in the first place so that you can kind of vary a different direction and, and really uh, catch readers off guard. I know for, for my characters, I'm, I'm writing about them in their kind of most desperate circumstances or, or mm -hmm. moments. And I know at times when I've felt um, the weight of the world and felt kind of uh, limited hope, to, to, to put it that way, <laughs> when I felt at the mercy of power structures or when I felt things were, challenges were insurmountable for me i needed that humor as a kind of coping mechanism communicating to my fellow poor co-workers when we worked warehouse jobs or when we were trying to not respond in a way that would get us fired to our kind of jerk supervisors um you know humor was the thing that saved us and, and mm -hmm. kept us from in a sense just destroying ourselves or putting ourselves in situations that would destroy everything that we, you know, what little we had. I like to put that on the page. So, cause that's just what I think my characters would do in a sense. I think when the power dynamic is, is skewed so much against them, like what else can they do, but, mm -hmm. you know, find the humor of the moment and, or even in a sense, it, it can deflect too, because sometimes I, I think about Trelawney, who's, we spent some time with him where he is living out of his vehicle and he has very material concerns and concerns about what he's going to eat on a given day and just trying to get gas money to be able to move this vehicle and Sometimes the absurd questions that these minor characters have for him that he could spend time engaging with or he can play it off with a joke so he can continue to try to move towards that more immediate necessity. I don't know. I think that's how some of us have to move through the world sometimes. I think maybe it's a little bit challenging for me to discuss humor as an isolated uh, characteristic of fiction in part because it needs to uh, exist along some other things. Like when you're cooking, acid has to cut fat. 
So for instance, one of my favorite stand-up sets is Richard Pryor's Live on the Sunset Strip, which from I think the 80s, um, Mm -hmm. I taught it to undergrads for a few years there. What I really like about that set is that the humor is able to exist with many other things. It's able to exist with sort of agony, with depression, with surprise, with many of those other emotions, especially when he's talking about the fire incident at the I think in the last 15 minutes of the set, it's the humor is amplified, I think, in a way because it exists along so many other things. For me, there's humor often accompanies suspense. You know, I, I think suspense seems to me when you said the dread for the characters. That dread is, you know, at least in my books, the children don't know where they're going. We, the readers, know. We know one of them is going to die. We know the other one is going to be forever lonely. But they are living in this bubble of suspense. Mm -hmm. They're just moving forward blindly, right? And also blithely. And just very, Mm -hmm. I feel that suspense oftentimes gives space for humor. And also, as what Jonathan and Lane said, just to subvert the anticipation. I think it's really important. So here's a question for all three of you. When you're starting on a project, whether it's a story, whether it's a novel, and I think this is going to weight a little differently depending on short story versus novel. Are you starting with character? Are you starting with language? Are you starting with story? Are you starting with the idea of the thing? What comes first? I think I start with emotion. um, And I'm trying to sort of chase down an emotion and trying to capture it, but not contain it so much that I'm suffocating it. For a while, I used to work as a journalist, sort of a freelance journalist in my 20s, very brief period of time. But it's interesting because trying to write like a magazine feature or something, you know what the story is, you know the events that have already happened. Now you try to, as a second step, put the emotion into it, what the characters felt. Mm-hmm. And with fiction, it's like the reverse. I start with the emotion. I don't know what the story is. I don't know who the characters are necessarily. I'm working on very little, like I'm thinking, oh, well, the way this light looks through a window or something, very li- a few details here and there, but I don't know what happens in the story. Absolutely, I agree. I think, you know, I, I do start with characters, but mostly because I don't know them. It's not, I know the character. I don't know the characters. Mm-hmm. I know, don't know their stories, but I have questions about these characters. It's the same for novels and short stories. You know, if I think, I mean, I have two girls, but why, why do they want to become writers? Why does one of them want to sign the name? The other one doesn't want to. I think it's almost like you don't have the story, but you have a situation. You need to write through the situation to find the story. But I do agree. I think that's exactly the opposite of what journalism Mm -hmm. does, right? That starts with the end of the story. So I think novels, I I guess fiction starts with the beginning of the story. And in some cases, I, I think of the end of the story first. And so mm-hmm. I want to, I may have a, just the final image that I'm kind of working to. And that image is packed with emotion. And I think that's a really important part. Sometimes I really need to work backwards from that image and think mm-hmm. about what would be the compelling opening that suggests a, a kind of pivot and a kind of movement towards that final image and thinking about how to earn that journey in a compelling way for readers, obviously, but for, you know, thinking about the, whatever it is that the character is going through, trying to back us up in time to the the latest possible moment where we'll understand this, 
person um, is entering a kind of crisis moment that I want to see play out in some way. I think there's just so many different ways it's a story. So you're starting with the end point. Right. And it's Trelawney and his dad at his dad's house, and Trelawney is doing something that he can't take back. Right. He can't take back. And it's a hinge moment in their relationship. There is absolutely... And I'm not going to tell people exactly what he's doing, but just know that his relationship with his father, this is, this is the moment. This is the moment where the kid makes a very, very bad call. But dad is also not making a great call. And yet it starts actually more with dad's story than Trelawney's. So let's, let's talk about what went into this particular story for a second. Yeah. When I, when I was first thinking about it, I was wondering, is this Trelawney's story you know, Jelani being the the son, his father Topper and his mother Sonia made the decision in the 1970s to move the family to Miami from Kingston. You know, when I was thinking about Jelani and his relationship with his father, his relationship with his Jamaicanness, his idea that maybe the family should never have emigrated to the U.S., I wanted to look back and think think about well, what was the decision making process like, and how do we actually you know, there's there's a way in which maybe I could have just had the entire story somehow take place in that final scene, which ends at a Topper's retirement party. I just thought it would be more interesting to actually see the the family's move and see everything that they go through as a result of that move. And I see that final action that Chalani takes in the story is this kind of ending of possibilities, or, or at least an attempt at ending, I guess, the health of the family unit. Mm-hmm. In as they will be moving forward in the United States. So I thought, well, how can we back this up to Topper? And I was thinking about Topper coming from the Jamaican middle class and having within his particular context, actually having a ton of options when he was a, a younger person, at least in relation to you know some of the other populations um, in Jamaica. Like he has he has access to his family's vehicles, his father is a business owner. Life starts off for him pretty good. And I think he he thinks things are going to continue to kind of go without the struggle that he does not anticipate. And so once I had my starting point, I just really wrote towards that final image at the, the end of the story at this party where I think Topper does something that he can never take back as well. And, and Chalani responds poorly. Mm. So... Ling, you're doing a not dissimilar thing in the story tomorrow, which actually caps out the Bliss Montage collection. You've got a woman who's facing her future, but also looking at her past. But can we talk about the baby arm? (laughs) Can we please talk about the baby arm in tomorrow? It came to me in a dream. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. As much as I'm responsible for a dream. (laughs) Okay. For a long time, I thought this is a ridiculous story. Why Mm -hmm. am I writing it? Is this Mm -hmm. just about penis envy or something. (laughs) Just to recap, I guess the premise, it's a pregnant woman walks around with this uh, fetal arm protruding out of her. It's in this sort of futuristic America on the decline. And that's literally all I started out with. I thought they're in Miami. She's in Miami. She has a medical emergency. Okay. And then so I started following a few things, the anxiety about the healthcare system, just a very challenged healthcare system. And then, okay, where is she going to end up? What is What are safe places? So she ends up going to, I guess, her home country. And there's this idea, I think maybe she plays with like this romanticism of like going back to your homeland and then 
reconnecting in some way with your relatives, even though there's only really one relative left right before she's going to give birth. But the baby arm really kept me sort of <laughs> I was not mystified me throughout the whole story. <laughs> I kept thinking of Chekhov's gun. Okay, when is this gun going to go off? What does this mean? It took me to some unexpected places, I guess. Ian, there's there's a little bit with the girls, with Agnes and Fabian and their tales. There's there's this idea when, you know, when Agnes first gets to her finishing school and the other girls are saying, well, you're not exactly what we expected. Mm-hmm. We read your book. They don't call it gross, but they're very surprised by sort of how dark and bleak it is. And suddenly Agnes says, well, maybe I'm, wait, she's sort of asking questions about where she's going and and what her future is and what her past was like. And you're playing with time in a very similar way to mm-hmm. what Ling is doing, not just in tomorrow, but I mean, the baby arm. <laughs> the baby arm. I have to say that the, there's even product to keep the baby arm moistured and warm. <laughs> I almost screamed. <laughs> it's f- funny because in Agnes and Fabian's book, there was a baby. It was a dead baby. Not only the baby died, they make the baby go away. They made the dead baby go away by feeding the dead baby to animals. So and people started to say, wow, you know, readers started to write to the girls and wow, you discovered a new way to destroy evidence, murder evidence. And the funny thing, I, I think this goes back to our, you know, earlier talk about anticipation and subvert anticipation. Fabian did not know growing up in the village, you know, living in that kind of, she did not know this was not right. It's just her life. It's like air and water for her. And I think when she goes to the finishing school and all the other girls really said, oh, you're crazy. You know, that's both stories we, we don't really like. I think that's the funniest part of the novel, actually, for me. It's just she is taken out of her own world and going to a normal sort of, you know, normalized, you know, finishing school life. And she realized that's where not only she doesn't fit, but there's no purity. There's no imagination. Everything is according to the rules. I do think of, you know, Lane's baby arm as that dead baby in my book. It's like, you cannot forget it. <laughs> sort of, you have to carry it with you. Well, and it's the truth of the story. I mean, all of you are writing about truth in a way that is slightly unexpected, I think. Certainly, I never expected Trelawney to be living out of his car. You know, I mean, you hear about this kid struggling, and then you realize, oh, wait. And there's that one job that he has where he's working at the old folks' home, and he's got to chase the guy around to get him to sign the paperwork. There's a lot happening there. But I want to talk about editorial process for a second, because each of you are working in similar veins, you're asking lots of questions about why people do what they do and why they make the choices they make. But if you're sitting down and and granted you all have MFAs, so it's not like suddenly you were faced with a blank screen and a cursor that was blinking at you and it was not. But where does your first set of readers come in? Where does your editor come in? Where are you sitting down and saying, okay, this is passable. I will show it to another human being. I usually don't show it to my editor until maybe later in the process, but maybe in the middle of the process, I'll show it to some of my friends and some of my MFA, former MFA cohort. There's really no sense in having people tell me things I already know have to Mm -hmm. be fixed. So you just try to push it as far as you can to get to a point where you're not sure where to go anymore. And it's good to have someone read it. Yeah, it's very similar with me. 
I'd say my 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 number two person is is my agent, you know, and, and she's she's wonderful about giving feedback and being open to it. But I try to get her the you know the most finished version I, I can before mm-hmm. before that happens. I've been in just a lot of programs over the last many years, and mm-hmm. so I've, I've collected my best readers from you know like my PhD program at the Stagner and people I met during my MFA and. Usually I'm waiting for somebody else to, I'm not really waiting, but it just, uh, the energy that aligns with writing community is such that, you know, one person will have a story that they really want feedback on right around the same time. I want feedback on my, my story. So I usually kind of find those people. So the, I'm not calling somebody up four years later saying, Hey, (laughs) you gave me good feedback in my MFA. Remember (laughs) how about you, uh, give me some feedback here. Yeah, I think it has changed for me. You know, at the beginning of my career, I would have a couple of really good first readers. And now I feel that I have worked with, you know, good editors. Now I feel that I have trained myself to read my own work as an editor and as those, you know, readers. So I was, I mean, I think with all my work, I've been probably the harshest reader and um, than anyone else. So, so... That said, I do think with the Book of Goose, there's an interesting moment that the original draft was 150 pages longer than what you got. Oh, interesting. Okay. And there was a lot more. And I think at some point, this is one a good editor I, I showed to Mitzi, Angel, who is my editor. And Mitzi said, you know, this book wants to be one thing. You sort of want the book to be another thing. Right away, I knew that I have to cut those 150 pages. <laughs> and just start cutting and so I do think at some point I need someone to say wait maybe you are being willful you're being stubborn you're making this book into something else so I always have that moment with a story or with a novel yeah I do feel like with Book of Goose too it's the perfect length because the chapters are remarkably short which I wasn't (laughs) expecting because I also made a point of actually not reading the catalog copy because I just I wanted to go into it cold so I was kind of like, all right, who is this little girl? And her voice was very, Agnes's voice was very clear to me. And Fabienne's voice was very clear to me. And I was like, oh, what are these two up to? And where are we going? And then the story just pushes forward. So I'm sure it was a lot of work, but I'm glad you can go ahead. Because <laughs> I know it'll be a different book. It's really, it's, the pacing is great. And, and I do want to talk to all of you about pacing because that's something actually that you do have to sort of sit with. The voice, I mean, it's clear to me that you all have voice sorted, that you know what you want the voice to be. I mean, Ling, I loved what you were saying about how Severance was kind of the cold reptilian mm-hmm. and this is the warm mammalian. Bliss Montage is a much more warm mammalian kind of story collection. And I think voice is that kind of thing, especially certainly as a reader, I, voice is a thing I love, but you know when it's right. And I think you, certainly the three of you know when you have the right voice. But can we talk about pacing for a second? In a story collection, you can do it not only with the layout of the stories in and the order they appear in the book, but also within the stories themselves. And it's not easy. I'm so glad you asked about pacing because pacing is, to me, sort of very much connected to editing and revising. I think voice asks you so we can get a voice right away get it right. Pacing, I think with short stories, with novels, both, I think oftentimes when I revise, it's moving things around, right? Cutting, it's actually just getting to the right pacing. 
Because when we work on something, we work for months and years, you know, <laughs> we don't have that urgency anymore. <laughs> we're just, you know, writing, we're just writing one page or two page. But yeah, so pacing. I wonder if, you know, when we aim for that right pacing, that's when we start to really train ourselves to be an editor rather than just a writer. Jonathan, how does that change or does that change if you're writing in the second person? Because you pull that off early in If I Survive You, you've got that great, great story where it's written wholly in the second person. And the pacing there is not nothing. Can we talk about that for a second? <laughs> yeah. Um, the first, the opening two stories yeah. are both um, second person. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully people like second person. I think in a, in a sense, it comes back to training yourself to have a good read on what what interests readers, what will mm-hmm. hold them for a unit of time and, mm-hmm. and push them forward. And for me, in, in a sense, it might be a series of handoffs of questions that they might like to know the answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll they'll read forward. And, you know, when I if I have them the most gripped, or at least I believe so, then I might do something more interesting with language. In that opening story, Chalani, he is trying to figure out his identity, like who he is. People are really, he it's a kind of necessity because people keep, you know, hitting him in a barrage of, of questions. Like, what are you? And every time he says, okay, I'm this, this is my answer to your question. They say, "Mm, no, that's not actually what you are. We don't think so. We don't believe you. He pushes into kind of these absurd trial runs with different corners of his identity. He, Mm you know, tries on blackness in weird ways, or he starts to walk differently and talk differently and dress differently and listen to different kinds of music. Then when he leans into his Jamaican-ness, he does, you know, similar things. My idea at at different times is that if I think I have the reader's attention for a given amount of time, I might play with language more and really let him, Mm -hmm. you know, delve into his idea of how he might go about speaking the Jamaican language in a convincing way that will satiate these people who demand of him answers that they just, they just don't really accept from him in any case. You know, we're all multidimensional people, but I think the story allowed me to kind of take those parts of his identity bit Mm -hmm. by bit and really focus in on them and try to have these um, like distilled version of like race or ethnicity and do so in such a way that, you know, we might come away understanding that, you know, a human being cannot live that way, not in the way that Trelawney is, is going about it anyway. Did you need to write that story in the second person? Because it feels like that story was not going to go in any other form to me, but I'm I'm on yeah. the other side of it than you are. You know, it's second person. Like I, I view it as Chalani having this conversation with himself and he's able to criticize his own actions, his own responses um, to this phenomenon of, of, of that question, what are you? He's critiquing the the minor characters and the voices that are, are coming at him, but he's also judging his his own actions uh, throughout, I think. And for me, it creates moments where there can be humor in a way where he's self-deprecating, but it, it's not so much a performance of self-deprecation. My influences, like the, the people who do second person best, they often pair second person with this kind of long time. 
And because we're talking about this variation in how he is dealing with his identity, I thought that really needed to be explored over the case, over the course of years and, mm-hmm. and rather than, you know, weeks or months. And so we we spend about, I don't know, like 20 years with him in, in flux. And the second person long time allowed me to kind of move at a really good pace through that time. I want to switch gears a tiny bit because Ling, there's a story you have that I'm really kind of dying to ask you about returning, which is it's the longest story in Bliss Montage. I can't let go of the woman who's narrating this story. Mm-hmm. And you know, the idea of she and her husband have flown to the country that he's from and Arboza. He mm-hmm. Yeah, he has left her in the airport. So can we talk about that voice and that character and that story and, and how that all came about? Because it really, I don't think I'm going to shake that story anytime soon. I'm certainly not going to shake the baby arm. But I mean, <laughs> can we talk about returning for a second? Yeah, sure. Well, I was thinking about what you were asking about pacing earlier. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to mention some of these stories when I look back at them, such as Los Angeles, the first mm-hmm. story, and Yali Lovemaking. I wrote them when I was much younger. So there mm-hmm. is this sort of impatience. I what I see myself doing is sort of like bumper cars. I'm kind of going as fast as I can until I hit something and then I switch gears. I think there is a bit of a fear that the reader is going to get bored. And Mm -hmm. having worked at a magazine, in the magazine world, um, it's very much about like the snappy hook. (laughs) And I can see the influence of having worked at magazines in those early stories of mine. The later stories in the collection, I think I learned how to take more of my time with it. And returning is the longest story in the collection. And I probably couldn't have allowed myself to write a story of that length when I was younger. I just felt like, wow, it's so slow. It's so tedious. There's a side of me that just, I want to be like entertained (laughs) by myself, I guess, immediately. Yes. I think in returning, I agree with you. It's definitely the most intimate one in some ways. The gold standard for me in voice. Actually, I think about the zines that I used to read in the 90s, early aughts. You know, I'd go to Quimby's in Chicago and I'd look at these personal zines. And also, I would say the early days of blogging, before we understood what the internet was, when there was no nothing at stake for the people writing. And I don't see that kind of zine, early blog voice in literature very much. It feels much more manicured. I try to think about that type of voice, especially for a story like Returning, which, you know, it's a very, I would say, it's not like the most dazzling premise. But I think it works because of the intimacy of these sort of disclosures of this female narrator. Ian, I want to come back to you for two things. One is you've been working with a magazine still, correct? You're still yeah. in the public space? Okay. Yeah, yeah. How do you switch gears between doing the magazine work and writing fiction now? Because, I mean, a public space is a different kind of magazine mm-hmm. right. than some. Um, yeah. You know, the longer I work on a magazine, the more I think maybe I'm meant to be an editor. <laughs> <laughs> I really love editing work. And I just worked with this young writer, Ada Jan, on her collection of stories. You know, we went through the story, many drafts. I think it's different than writing my own stories. More, I think it makes me 
a different kind of reader. I'm I'm very harsh reader of my own work, so I'm also a harsh reader of most people's work. But when you're an editor, being harsh is not the point. You know, understanding and meeting where the writer is and trying to understand, also trying to sort of push a writer a little forward, you know, a little deeper or a little broader. That to me is very satisfying experience. It's really like cultivating it's like gardening right you know <laughs> what the flowers are going to do that they're going to do it on their own too but i'm just nudging them i'm just taking care of them you know for a year of time momentarily in their life so that's different than writing yeah i i feel i'm much more patient as an editor okay so we have a good idea of who you all are now as writers we have a good idea of who you are when you're editing your own work at least and others but who are you as readers? Who are the big influences? Who are the other writers that you go back to? Who have you been reading lately? Like, let's just jump in and do the fun part of the, oh yeah, have you heard of this? Because also I have to tell you, Jonathan, when I started reading your collection, I kept thinking about Mohsen Hamid's How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, because he does that same thing with the voice. And you're just like, oh, where is this going? Oh, that's been on my to read list for, for a minute. Yeah. And I, and I have yet to get to it. So I'll bump mm-hmm. it up. I'm a huge fan of, of Paul Beatty. You know, the humor in, in his writing is, is just phenomenal. And I went through a phase, not, not a phase, just a, a period where I read so much Kurt Vonnegut. It all almost merged into, it was beyond a single book in my mind. And there was just so much humanity and humor. Like, I can't imagine myself writing this book without having read Nella Larson. Passing too, but uh, particularly Quicksand. Because in that, that novel, we have a character who has a totally different experience with her identity, her biracial identity um, in the South versus Chicago versus Harlem versus um, Scandinavia. That book was, I think, written in the 20s. And, you know, to, to me, it still reads like it could have been yesterday. You know, it could have come out today. It just felt like such brave writing about race and the nuances of, of race and the nuances of Blackness in America that I just think is phenomenal. Yeah, White Boy Shuffle actually reads like it was written last year, and it's, I think, 20 years old at this point, or maybe even older than, I can't remember the first year I read it, but I remember thinking, who is this guy? I need more, and luckily we've gotten lots more, but it really, White Boy okay. Shuffle really, it holds. Young, can we talk about William Trevor for a second? One of your big influences, and I'm so fond of him. Like I am. Not everyone reads him anymore. I know, isn't that true? I would say I am a reader more yeah. than a reader. You know, mm-hmm. I, I truly believe what, you know, Nabokov said, you cannot read, you can only reread. I just started to do this experiment because I wanted to see how much time I do rereading versus reading on a daily basis. I feel maybe I spent five hours rereading and one hour reading new work. That's about, you know, the ratio of, you know, William Trevor, certainly I read, I read him or I reread him. Oh, he's written 30 books. And mm-hmm. still I got to the point, I thought, you know, I wish there were another 30 books so I can always, you know, be immersed in his work. He is my biggest influence. The attention he pays to, and also the just care he takes with the characters, with stories, mm-hmm. with novels. And so he's the, my biggest influence. And I, you know, of course, Tolstoy, I read him all the time with my Tolstoy together. And I read Moby Dick every year. Every time I finish Moby Dick, I have this moment of thinking, oh no, I finish it again. I need to go back right away because <laughs> I feel like there are things I've been missing from the book. So those are sort of my rereading. A lot of books mm-hmm. are for rereading. 
And I read a lot of dictionaries. I have at least five different dictionaries on my desk at this moment. Mm -hmm. I just, whenever I have a few minutes, I just open a dictionary. I have a garden dictionary, just reading, you know, plants' Mm -hmm. names. And then I have, you know, Dr. Johnson's dictionary. So I I, I like to spend a lot of time with words and just to know how they sound, what they mean, you know, their history, how they become the words we use today. So those are kind of things I do all the Mm -hmm. time. Well, I have to say I'm pretty guilty of starting books and then casting them aside. Usually the books that I read all the way through that continue to grip me, much of it has to do with voice, particularly the first person voice. If the voice is there, I will go anywhere with them. Some things that have stuck with me, A Sorrow Beyond Dreams, which he wrote about um, his mother's life. You know, it's a difficult book to read. It feels like almost compulsory, like he couldn't do anything but write this. It's such a sort of powerful and painful book to read. Uh, Passages uh, from it I still think about. I also like the short stories of Miranda July. I think every one of her narrators are very, very specific people. I often work with narratives that have surreal premises. And the problem with that is often it can get very gimmicky. You have to make sure that you can still emotionally anchor the story in some way. And so I often think back to Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls for that. A ridiculous premise, but wonderfully uh, emotive sort of piece, just kind of vibrating with emotion, the whole thing. So those are some, I guess, reference points. And also... Did I mention uh, Frank O'Hara's poetry, which is what I the most read book uh, for me in high school, the collected poems of Frank O'Hara. That was the book that got me thinking about voice a lot more. He wrote, what was it, this manifesto, he called it, called Personism. There was a line in there where he says, if someone is chasing you down the street with a knife, you don't turn around and describe the person chasing you. You just continue to run. And I think about that line all the time when I am trying to get the voice right. Those are some reference points. I love that Frank O'Hara. I really do. So what's next for everyone? Have you started new books? Well, I have a collection of stories coming out next year. You know, my last collection, Gold Boy and Rogo, came out 2008. So it's been almost 15 years and I've been writing short stories. So that's, that's my next book. I'm working on, you know, a bunch of other things. I'm working on a, a novel, but story ideas keep coming to me. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm very heavily in my my notes app. <laughs> and I feel like I'm really, I'm, I'm writing a, a next story collection while I'm writing the novel. And I'm under contract for a novel. <laughs> so we'll see. I'm just working on more fiction. I don't know if it's a novel or not, but there was an abandoned novel that I try to make happen before severance. I actually think I'm rewriting it, although the characters and the premise are completely different. It seems to be circling around the same questions that were embedded in the abandoned project. So it's what I think I'm working on. It all sounds very, very cool. You know, I realize we're bumping up against all sorts of time constraints and everyone has to get back to the work. So on that note, Ling Ma, Bliss Montage is out now. Jonathan Escoffrey, If I Survive You, is also out now. And Yi Lee, your book will be out moments after this podcast comes out. So everyone should pre-order it now and then buy The Book of Goose when it's in stores. Thank you all so much for making the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. 
Hello, readers, and welcome to another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to go along with today's episode. Uh, I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. And we have a collection of books to talk about based on today's episode with three authors, three books. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to hand it over to Mark to get us started. Hooray. (laughs) Hello, everybody. Uh, So I chose a book to go along with Jonathan Escoffery's If I Survive You. And the book I chose is A Manual for Cleaning Women by the magnificent Lucia Berlin. I love this book so, 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 so much. Uh, Berlin was a very keen observer and chronicler of the human condition. And the stories pull from a lot of her life experiences, but I think readers can connect very, very well with any of the stories that she puts through. She talks about addiction, loneliness, religion, family, love. It's all here and all told so, so beautifully. Um, And it's just handled with a very honest delicacy that is, I think, truly unmatched. Um, She writes simply, which allows the truths of her stories to really make an impact and strike more powerfully. Uh, My first read through, I just jumped around. I picked a story at random and went with that and was amazed every time. Uh, My second read through, which I would highly recommend, is just reading it start to finish in the order that it was presented. Um, This gives a lot more of a biographical arc of uh, this author's life. It's a magnificent book. Um, It's about a woman surviving on the fringes of society and uh, just doing her best. And anybody can connect with that. Um, I love, love, love this book. Please, please read A Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin. Becky, you're up next. Oh, my goodness. That sounds incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, So the book uh, that I came up with to go along with Yi Yin Lee's Book of Goose is White Chrysanthemum by Marilyn Brock. This This is her debut novel. It does not read like that. It is beautifully told historical fiction and um, it follows two sisters who are uh, separated by World War II. So we start by meeting Hannah, who is, uh, is 16 years old and is a sea diver. And she helps support her family uh, by going diving for fish. And one day her life is changed dramatically when in the efforts to hide her little sister from a Japanese soldier, she is captured. And she joins what is estimated to be over 200,000 women who were kidnapped and became comfort women uh, for Japanese military brothels. Many of these women just suffered a devastating life, um, and most of them were never heard from again. Uh, So that is also then paralleled 60 years into the future with Emmy, who has spent 60 years trying to come to terms with the sacrifice that her sister made for her. and. she finally thinks that she may have an opportunity to find out what happened to her sister. We get to see both women. uh, And uh, this book will rip your heart out a little bit. It is, it is devastating. It is, uh, but it's so captivating also. And um, really it just, it talks about sisterly love um, and just how big love is and how it can overcome almost anything. So it's 
like I said, just a beautiful book. You definitely need to pick up White Chrysanthemum by Marilyn Brockt. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you had me at heartbreaking, crushing. <laughs> Mark likes a sad book. He does. Yes, he, he does. does. <laughs> Uh, well, the book I chose next is not so sad. Um, mm. I got to pick a book for um, Lingma's Bliss Montage, which I'm very excited for. Mm. So I thought of a something a little bit more whimsical, and it is St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves by <laughs> Karen Russell. Yes. I love that title so much. It's just so fantastic. The cover of the book is compelling. It's all just, it's a, it's a big yes, please for me. This is Karen Russell's debut collection. She is known probably most famously for her book Swamplandia, which is just a, a true wonder. Um, and I believe was inspired by some of the stories that you would find in this book here. Um, the stories are full of humor and heart and have just faint and sometimes heavy brushstrokes of the bizarre. Um, each story has a child narrator and they all take place in the swampy Florida Everglades. Um, this author's sense of place is so immersively perfect. And you finish this collection just smelling swamp water and hearing mosquitoes and feeling that sort of oppressive, sticky heat, but in the best possible way. Uh, there are some magical elements to these stories, but through the eyes of these young narrators, they appear very commonplace and honest and true. And you just kind of believe what's going on in each of these stories. They're all fantastic. So please, please check out St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves by Karen Russell. <laughs> oh, that's a great. Oh, yeah, that's such a good one. Fun time. Oh, my goodness. This is such a fun episode. I'm so excited. Three books. Yeah. Three authors. I love it. Um, I love it. Six books, actually. Yeah. Because then, yeah, add arson and... Oh my goodness! Yep, so many a, books to read. A cornucopia of uh, titles. So I'm just eat them all. Up. Them all. Yes. yes. Please. Uh, well, so that's all that we have for today. But that's a lot. Yeah. So um, yeah. So definitely eat them all up. Thank you for tuning in to Port Over. When you have a chance, please rate and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Uh, you can always follow Barnes and Noble at Barnes and Noble, so you can get all the details that you need mm -hmm. for when those books are coming out. Yes. And um, I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. And you can follow us at our home store at BN Westchester. I don't know what else to say. Just happy reading. Happy reading, everybody. <laughs> Enjoy. Bye. Thanks again. Poured Over is a Barnes and Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.